All right, all systems ago. Time to preach. <laughs> all right, so uh, if you've been with us over the past two weeks, we began a sermon series uh, two weeks ago, and Tim brought us uh, to realize that we are going to be coming to Jesus in this sermon series. We spent a lot of time over the past several years jumping around Old Testament, New Testament, uh, And we just want to come and we want to look at the Master Himself. We want to look at Jesus Himself. And how we started that is we came to this passage in Mark 2, 1-12, through this story about a paralyzed man and his friends come and bring him to Jesus. They come to Jesus. And it's like we imagined ourselves in there with them. And uh, the first week that we saw, we saw that what we think we need And what we actually need most is all jumbled. It's all confused. What we think we need to come to Jesus with, what we think is most important, is not necessarily what is most important. Because what we really need most is life with God. And that's what Jesus had to offer this man. He had to offer life with God. And so we came to Jesus... Uh, but then we kind of had this like Groundhog Day experience where we came to Jesus again in the same, the same passage. Uh, but, but it was good because it allowed us to dig in a little deeper. And so we started off with uh, the first week from the perspective of the crowd. And the second week, we transitioned and we went to the perspective of the man. And what we saw last week is that when things really hit the fan, we need people who will bring us to Jesus. Like this paralyzed man had this, these friends who were there ready to pick him up and take him in and bring him into the presence of Jesus so that he could receive nourishment and healing. And Tim really put out a challenge for us to really think about, are we surrounded with a community that will bring us to Jesus when it hits the fan? Yes, we have small groups. Our church talks about triads. Uh, and Tim, I, it, it really ministered to me. He, we don't care about programs. We care about you. The best ministering that I've received has been in community with my small group of guys that meets on Monday nights. Where at times I've realized I need you guys to pick me up and bring me to Jesus, to lift me up in prayer and be there for me. Uh, when things really do hit the fan. So, that first week we came to Jesus. Well, then we came to Jesus again. And you might think that different preacher, different passage, but you'd be wrong because we're going to come to Jesus again and again this week. And you, you might be like, okay, well, three weeks in a row, same passage. Like, you're, Maybe you're thinking, okay, my eyes are already glazing over. And... We're only like three minutes into this sermon. But have you seen Jesus come and turn to you yet? You know, we, we are coming to Jesus in this series and we're kind of taking up the perspective of different people in the passage and, and seeing it through their lens. But have you had the experience yet where Jesus has turned to you and said, hey, where are you with this? This is actually one of the most ancient ways of reading the Bible. And this is largely why we're doing this series, because 
This is actually how the Bible was designed to be read. Uh, humor me for a second. In, in the very first psalm, I'm going to read this out, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on His law day and night. It's the picture of someone at ease with God, someone uh, living the life the way it ought to be, and it paints this person who meditates on Scripture day and night. And this word meditate, in Hebrew, I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word, is Hagah. Repeat after me. Hagah. Hagah. Okay, now say it softly. Hagah. Hagah. And now say it over and over softly. Hagah, 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 hagah. The word that gets used when a cow is chewing its cud. It's the word that gets used when a lion finds its prey and now it's it's and it's the word that's used when a blessed person is muttering the word of God under his or her breath over and over again, reflecting on it morning and night morning and night, until the 17th time he or she reads that passage. Oh my goodness. And you know, the early church actually took up this practice, especially, especially with the Gospels, especially with the life of Jesus, coming to these passages again and again, reading it, imagining themselves as a bystander, as a participant in the story, waiting and watching, and praying, reading it again, waiting, and watching, and praying, until Jesus himself turns and says, hey, where are you with this? This is what we're doing with this series. We're learning this practice together, and we're waiting for Jesus to come and turn to each and every one of us. Say, hey, where are you with this? So we're going to do that one more time. Have you seen Jesus come to you yet? So last week, we were looking through it from the perspective of the paralyzed man. This week, we're going to take a look at it from the perspective of the friend. So if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 2, for the third time, it's on page 813 in your Black Pew Bible. And we're going to be focusing in on verses 3 through 5 because I think that is the meat of the action for the friends. But I will read through uh, Mark 2, 1 through 12. Listen to it as it's read out. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teacher of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, 
Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to focus in on these verses, these verses 3 through 5, where the friends really take center stage. But more uh, in particular, I want to take a look at this verse 5, because I think that's the verse on which this whole passage hangs. It's the strange verse. It's the shift in the passage that goes, huh? And I think there's a few things. First off, let me just read it out. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Is this what they expected? What exactly did Jesus see? What was it about their faith that elicited this response? So I I want us to notice uh, three particular things about this passage. I'm going to go through and we're going to glean from it. The first thing that we're going to talk about is what he saw. The second is why he responded. And the third is what it meant. So first, what he saw. Second, why he responded. And three, what it meant. So first, what he saw. Well, if you look back in verse 5, it says he saw faith. He saw their faith. And I think, generally speaking, this faith loosely means for us something like belief. Belief? Like, I believe a lot of things. I mean, like, did he, did he see their belief? You know, what, what exactly did he see? Did he see, wow, you know, they, they really have a, a correct belief here. I really see them nailing uh, some sort of true belief about life. What? what is, I don't think, I don't think he saw a belief, it's faith is both greater than and not equal to belief. What I think he saw is I think he saw conviction. He saw conviction which generates reckless abandon. He saw conviction which generates reckless abandon. So this, this is a word that we use or a phrase that I, I've heard uh, in and around our church, uh, reckless abandon. I just want to break down this phrase a little bit for us. First of all, first off, the word reckless. It, it can uh, be used in some instances to refer to uh, thoughtless, uh, without care. It's, it's a careless action. But when it's used in conjunction with a term like reckless abandon, usually we mean it in some way like without reckon. It's, with, it's, it's reckless, without reckon, to one's personal cost. It's without regard to your personal cost. And, 
And then you just pursue after some dream, some goal. And, and we actually create heroes out of things like this. Think about Olympians with reckless abandon. They're pursuing after their dreams. They're going to go for the gold. Next year is the Olympics and most of the whole globe is going to be watching it because it's fascinating to see these young people who have given their lives since they were two years old to be gymnasts or to be ice skater champions. It's crazy the things that they have done without regard to their personal cost. Without regard to their personal cost. They've hit bodily injuries. They've put so much strain on their life, their uh, personal circumstances, because they are pursuing after this dream. It's a conviction which generates reckless abandon. What faith it takes to live a life like that. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so look at the friends. Look at the friends. What was it? So Jesus saw their faith. But what exactly did Jesus see? Look at the verbs in particular. What are the action words? You know, these, they came, they brought, they carried, they unroofed the roof, as Tim mentioned last night. They dug, they lowered this 175-pound man, you know, through the roof, the, the strenuous activity. They were unstoppable. They were unrelenting. They had a conviction which generates reckless abandon. But I don't know if reckless abandon really fits perfect with this. I mean, was this a dream of theirs? Was this, was this a, or was this more reckless love? Hey, Jesus is in town. We need to get you there. We need to get you to the, this man. He's going to take care of you. He's going to heal you. We'll, we'll do whatever it costs. We'll come. We'll take you. Ah, crowds. What do we do? Bring him to the roof. Unroof the roof. Dig. Dig, 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 dig. Don't care what anyone else thinks. We just got to keep digging. And lower this 175-pound man. The reckless love that they have for this man without regard to their personal cost. Pursuing it. So what he saw? Jesus saw reckless love. But why did he respond? Because the text says that Jesus saw their faith, but there's a very important word right before this. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. How are we to understand this? Is, does this just simply mean, well, after Jesus saw her, their faith, well, the, the very next thing was he forgave his sins. Just, it's just the next thing that happened. You know, when this happened, then this happened. Or is it more like because he saw their faith, when he saw their faith, upon seeing their faith, he then had to respond. He responded in this way. How, how do we understand why Jesus gave them such a response as this? Well, I think there's two options. One option is they earned they earned his response. Kind of like a genie in a lamp sort of a thing. You know, they, they just really did the right thing here. They just really impressed Jesus with, with the deep love that he had for this man, they had for this man. They pursued uh, it with reckless love and, brought, and Jesus just goes, right on, guys. You totally nailed it. 
So I'm going to respond now. Oh, I guess that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is they were gifted his response. But how, how can we say that they were gifted his response if in fact it says, you know, when he saw this, then he did this? In, in what way would it be a gift if he's doing it in response? I think for this we actually have to notice a really key thing and I think it's the thing that we all notice and it's the really strange thing. We need to start looking at what his response was which was not healing the man right away at least and saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Huh? Pardon me, Jesus, just unroofed the roof, totally brought him down. Uh... Do you expect us to carry him back? Uh, this isn't exactly why we came here. You know, I thought we did it all right, and then so pretty much earned your uh, saving work in his life to heal his legs. But instead, you gave us this weird response and don't really know what it means. So this is where I think we need to say, okay, Jesus is not giving them what they expected. and He's giving, he's giving, he's giving them something else. So what does it mean? And I think what it means is that he is seeing something in them that he himself has. Reckless love. I think it's kind of like this. It's like as the dirt is falling on his head as, and he's saying to the crowd, just wait a minute. It's falling. This is going to be good. This is amazing. And Jesus Himself is delighted. Delighted to see this is, this, is, this is what I came for. I came to seek and love the lost. Look at, look at these people coming and, and with reckless love for this individual without regard to personal cost. They love this man. But you know what? I want to show them how much deeper a love they can gain for this man. I want to show them the reckless love that I have for this man. I was thinking about an analogy for this, and it was a little difficult for me at first, but I started to think of the language that Jesus uses for this man. His first words out of Jesus' mouth is, Son, Son, who are you to say, son, Jesus? You know, like maybe, I mean, you're probably around the same age as this man. And son, putting him in this relationship of you know, father to son, son, your sins are forgiven. It made me think of the relationship with my own father. You know, when I was uh, in uh, late elementary school, I used to go to Home Depot with my grandfather, and we used to, uh, it was a way for us to bond, and he would make little projects with me, whether it was like a little birdhouse Home Depot would set up for kids to come with their grandparents to come and make a little birdhouse or a little treasure chest. Um, but one of the things I made was this shelf, like a very small, maybe foot and a half tall shelf that goes in the corner uh, between two walls like this. And after my grandfather passed, uh, my dad was in the middle of 
building a game room in our house. And he was decking it out with all this nice pine uh, that had been stained. And the, it, was, it was a cathedral ceiling uh, with an elliptical window at the end and the, the wood of a, a, of a pool table. It was beautiful. Um, wood all over the place. And for Christmas, I gave him this shelf that I made for him. Or, well, that I had made with my grandfather, but now I was giving it to him. And it was, I haven't seen my dad weep often, but he wept. This wasn't a, it's not really great. <laughs> it's not a really great piece of craftsmanship. You know, you can, but my dad, he went and he put it in the corner wall. It's on prime display. He's put little knickknacks in there. It doesn't quite fit. It's not a perfect 90 degree sort of a thing. But he loves me. You know, it, I, no one else would put that, but someone who says, son, I, I love you. I love this. I'm putting this in this. You know, he is the master craftsman. The cathedral ceiling. But he took this little foot and a half and he, I think he saw, you know, I... I see you doing, I see you, I see a little bit of me in you. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's just seeing a little bit of his own reckless love. But he's inviting them to discover the deeper reckless love. You know, just as much as there's a conversation, this kind of nonverbal conversation that becomes a verbal conversation between the scribes and Jesus. We could very well, just as Tim did last week, write a conversation between him and the paralyzed man and Jesus that happens just through eye contact, like, sins are forgiven? Well, my, what about the legs? And what about these friends? Uh, hang on. And Jesus just looks at them. His sins are forgiven. He's my son, and his sins are forgiven. And imagine what it would look like to go home as the friends after that. And yes, he had his legs back. But wait, why did he say sins are forgiven? I mean, he just got his legs back. But why did he say sins are forgiven? Why was that the first thing out of his mouth? And it just bothers them. And it bothers, like, just scratching their And then they hear about this man, Jesus, that had gotten crucified out in Jerusalem finds out he's been raised from the dead and that he has achieved the forgiveness of the world. What we're supposed to see in Son, your sins are forgiven, we are supposed to see the reckless love of God who came and sought us. Jesus, who did not regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, but gave himself as a slave. taking the shame of the cross so that we might be called sons and daughters of God, washed, cleansed, forgiven. This is our first sermon. This was the first thing that Tim preached on. What we think we need, and that includes the friend, what, what the friends think their friend needs, and what we need most, it's in conflict. Jesus knows what we need most, and what we need most, as Tim said that first week, is life with God, forgiveness with God. 
And don't mistake it. It's not, Jesus loves us spiritually, but we love each other physically. We, we care about the physical needs. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't forget, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead bodily. He went to the cross bodily. He has sought us to make us completely whole. It's not enough that we are physically uh, whole only to die one day. It is enough that we are made spiritually whole so that one day we can dwell in the very presence of God in His new glorious world, bodied, never to decay, never to be crippled, And He's just given them a taste of what that's about. So yeah, sins are forgiven. That's the most important thing. But I do choose to heal this man. Because it's a sign, it's a a taste of the glory to come. So we've come to Jesus again and again. And we're, we're watching Him Give His love. His reckless love. For these friends. For their friend. And I think what we need to take away from this is that we have friends. You know, as Tim said last week, when it hits the friend, when it hits the fan, <laughs> do you have friends that will bring you to Jesus? But there's the inverse of that. Are you in community? Are you in a group of friends that will bring people to Jesus when it hits the fan? You see, you need to come to Jesus again and again on behalf of those around you until His reckless love becomes your reckless love. What does reckless love look like for us? I think reckless love, first off, is done in community. It's done in community. As Tim said, it might be a small group. It might be a triad. It might be a one-on-one relationship. But stop and think right now. If you are sitting there and you're like, I don't have anyone that can bring me to Jesus, but maybe more startlingly, I'm not in a position to bring anybody to Jesus. That's a problem. (laughs) We have uh, been brought together as the body of Christ Sunday by Sunday to come to see each other, to, to make the connections in order that then during the week, again, when it hits the fan, whether it's someone who is grieving, whether it's someone who is celebrating, whether it is someone who is sick, whether it's someone uh, who is uh, handicapped, or whether it's someone who is different than us, maybe even annoying. Are we willing to come around them as community and keep bringing them to Jesus? And so that means it has to be relentless. In order for it to be reckless love, it has to be relentless. Come to Jesus again and again and again and pray for them. Lift them up. Bear their burdens as these friends bore their friend's 
uh, burden upon themselves. They carried, they dug. Are you carrying your friends? Are you digging for your friends? Jesus wants us to pray. Just he, he didn't correct them. He didn't say, ah, you know, who cares about this man's paralysis? He was delighted. He saw their faith. So we ought to be bringing our friends to Jesus for whatever is in their hearts and in their lives. But don't be surprised if you hear Jesus say again and again, their sins are forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. But Jesus, don't you see? Don't you see? This person's marriage is falling apart. But Jesus, don't you see? This person is deathly ill and I don't know if they're going to get better. Jesus, don't you see? Their sins are forgiven. Don't, don't you see? Don't you see? Their sins are forgiven. And so we need to ultimately recognize that reckless love is ultimately achieved by Jesus. So let's come to Jesus again and again until His reckless love becomes our reckless love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, reflecting on what You've done for us. Think of the words of the song we, we just sang. And can it be? Could it possibly be true that I've gained an interest? That my name has become associated with the blood of Jesus? Died He for me? The one who caused his pain for me, for him to death pursued, amazing, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Lord Jesus, capture us by your reckless love. Inspire us by Your reckless love for us. And change us to be people through whom Your reckless love can flow out to the broken and hurting community around us. We pray this in Jesus' name.